Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 20th, 2011. This is episode 807 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, today is a Tuesday. And we are going to uh, kind of rock on with just Jack talking to you today like we've been doing more of lately, because a lot of you said you wanted that. And uh, I do want to let you know a couple things. One, i got two interviews lined up for you guys over the next two days. They should be great interviews uh, on some subjects I think a lot of you guys are going to be interested in. Friday, we're going to have the Christmas special. And then again, like I've said before, the show will shut down between Christmas and New Year's. And we'll come back on the 2nd of January, ready to rock, ready to look forward into 2012. And that's kind of what we're going to do today. Uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of the things I expect to happen in 2012 um, I also want to let you know that when we get back into that new year, we'll be back to your call, your, your email questions, comments, concerns on Mondays and listener calls on Fridays. Uh, I decided to go back to that format. I think it worked. I think the majority of you guys that commented on my show about going back to the old format were in favor of that. Uh, and we're also in favor of capping the guests at two a week. And what we're trying to do is two guests a week maybe two weeks out of the month, and one guest a week the other two weeks. Uh, that won't really totally f fall into place until, like, March. Uh, we'll pretty much have two guests a week through the first couple months of the year because um, we already have them booked. And then we'll leave those extra days. If somebody really hot pops up that wants to be on the air that you guys really want to hear from, we can have a place to work them in. And we'll be back more to the way things were before we went into this, like, guest blitz that happened here at the end of the year. I think that's what most people want, and I want to give you what you want. I cannot give everybody what they want. God knows that, but I can give the majority of the audience what you want, and that's what I've tried to do since day one, so that's what we're going to do. Um, before we get into today's topic, looking forward into 2012, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to talk about agricultural movement in 2012 and some of the things I see happening to our food supply uh, and what that means to you. And what it means to you is the same thing it always should have. You want to take responsibility for some of your own food production. And one of the best resources I can recommend that you get your hands on to see how to do that is Backyard Food Productions uh, DVD. Uh, it's called Food Production Systems for Backyards or Small Farm, and it's at BackyardFoodProduction.com. And really what it does is shows you how to turn your land into a food production machine. to make so It's something that manufactures food for you. And I guarantee you that people will watch it and think, well, that system's too big, and not realize, hey, you could scale it down. Or people will go, well, I don't want to do this one component. The whole point is to see a full system in operation and pick and choose the pieces that work for you. I think this would be a great um, late Christmas present because it's not going to get there in time now if you order it, but it would be a great late Christmas present, New Year's present, something like that, uh, for anybody that's interested in gardening, agriculture, food production. And if you don't have it in your library, you should. So check it out today. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Just yesterday I told you that your gun without an, the right supply of ammunition was nothing but an overexpensive club. Well, it's not even much better with ammo if you don't know how to use it. And I think a lot of people get into a belief that they know everything they need to know about operating their, their firearm. And they might be great shots. They might be people that can, you know, hit beer bottles at 100 yards offhand all day long. 
But can you do it when somebody's shooting back at you? Can you do it in a situation where your adrenaline's running? Can you do it in a situation where you're worried your kids or your wife or someone else you love might be getting shot at or killed or hurt or harmed? And when something goes down, do you know how to help save a life, not just take a life? If you want to be able to answer those questions with yes and have confidence in your ability, you need firearms training. And you don't need it once. You need it over time, over and over and over again. Even the people that teach these courses take the take courses themselves every year. Because if you're not continuing to learn, you're forgetting things. That's how it works. You're either moving forward or backward in all things in life. Well, when it comes to that kind of training, one of the best schools I can recommend for you are Fortress Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr.'s operation. Uh, he's got an amazing school, an amazing cadre of instructors. And just about anything you would want to take instruction on, From basic handgun to carbine to, to, to shotgun defense uh, to medical response, you name it, uh, you can take it there. And if you can't travel to Illinois, but you've got a group of people that want to get together and do this locally, he'll bring the training to you as long as there's a large enough group. That's probably like half a dozen guys, folks. That's not that many. So get in touch with Frank, see what options are available, and if you want to do something closer to home, Start talking to folks at work, at the gun club, what have you. And all the people that you know that own firearms, talk to them about how important training is. And even if you don't go to Frank, I'm going to throw a little extra in today, go somewhere. Get some training. It's what makes you a better, more responsible, uh, more equipped, and better able to act gun owner. And we need as many of those as we can get in this country with some of the places that we're probably heading in the near future. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. The snow sale has been extended to Wednesday to compensate for the hack we had on the website, people not being able to sign up. That is all completely cleared up now, finally. Um, we had the hack cleared up on, like, Saturday. Uh, but it took until, I think, sometime yesterday before all the services said, yes, you're safe again, and stop blocking people's access or what have you. So you can join the Member Support Brigade for 30 bucks for your first year, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty prior service, email before you join. I have a special discount program for you to thank you for your service. So with that, let's get into today's main topic. You know, I just feel that at this point, maybe I should have done already done this show. Um, and I was sitting down today thinking, you know, I was going to do something else, and then I thought, you know, you didn't do anything looking into 2012 yet. And this is really your last chance because you've got two interviews lined up and then you've got your Christmas show and then you're done for the year. So you better get off, off your, off the pot, so to speak, and do it. Uh, so that's what we're going to do today. And, um, I think it's important that we look ahead because there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I, first of all, I am not one of these people that says on this date this will happen or by this date this will happen in most situations. I believe that most of the people that play in that world, are can kickers. You know, we always say our politicians kick the can. Let me tell you one of the guys who's got some really great track record on calling things that's kicking the can and has been kicking the can for three years. Gerald Salente. Gerald Salente, and I think that it's when he got into the sphere with all of the hype media that uh, that maybe it became more necessary for him to pin down dates to things and to, instead of doing more general predictions. And then as they became closer, say, okay, now we're there. In 2008, Salenti said 2009 would be a year of great change. People would be rioting in the streets over food and exchanging, you know, food as gifts on the holidays instead of, you know, basically this list of stuff. And then 2009 came and went and it didn't happen and it became 2010 predictions and then it became 2011 predictions and now it's pretty much the writings on the wall. And from the article I just read, he's just pushed those predictions into 2012. I'm not putting the guy down because he does get a lot right. But I want to be clear that when I do these things, I'm not trying to do that. And I'm not trying to defer. 
I'm being honest with you when I say I don't know when exactly the municipal bond default is going to reach cascade effect and cause a major destruction to the United States economy. I don't know when. And I know that it takes a critical mass. I, I have some predictions about it in 2012, and I don't see the critical mass in 2012. I see them holding it together at least into 2013 for a variety of reasons. But when I say that, I'm being honest. I'm not trying to hedge my bet, so to speak. So when you hear me say some things today, and I don't get very specific about when, that's, that's why. Because I don't know. I can look at this macro level stuff, and I can see the obvious conclusion that we're headed for. But at the micro level, there are so many variables, and so many interconnected systems, and so many points of resiliency. I mean, as screwed up as a lot of things are in the world, there's a lot of resiliency in the global economy as well. There's a lot of compensation. There's a lot of things that if something fails here, something picks up there. And these things have gotten us by the skin of our teeth for the last 20 years, as far as I'm concerned. And then the question is only, how much longer can the skin of our teeth carry us? And I think it's further than most people that are in the business that we're in here think it is. Because if you're not warning everybody that something's going to happen tomorrow, you don't get them into reactionary mode, and then you don't sell as much advertising, and you don't, you know, you don't have as much influence, and you can't drive them to do things. And I think that's unfortunately motivating part of that sphere of influence. And I try to be kind of the more moderate viewpoint on this and say, yeah, we're heading there, but you know, is it really going to matter, uh, or is it going to be tomorrow? You know, and I usually tell you it's not going to be tomorrow. And so far, I've been right. Um, let's start out my first one. Uh, this one is one that, that people are going to go, duh. Um, we are going to have, quote, and it's important you understand this, quote, the most important election in history, end quote. And then my little thing on the end of that is, meh, not really. No, not really. It's really not going to be that big a deal. Um, both sides are going to say that this is a battle for the heart and soul of America, and, uh, You know that, that we that you know Obama this and who and whoever on the other side that and it's probably going to be Romney or Perry. I still think Perry has a legitimate shot at this, though he he had every opportunity for my prediction for him to come true, and he just opened his mouth too many times saying too much dumb stuff. And I never thought the man was capable of saying so many dumb things. And there's really not that many, but when you're a politician out of Texas following George Bush as the last Republican president, and you say dumb stuff, it has an effect that's like ten times greater than if you were a politician from Ohio saying the same dumb stuff. It really is. But I think it's between the two of those. Now, let me let me say why I think, man, not really. Because either way, we're picking which status globalist ass-clown establishment uh, shill is going to run our country. Are there some differences between a Romney and an Obama? Yeah, but it's not enough for it to be the most important election in history. Um, repealing Obamacare, if anybody on the other side can get that done, that's a big issue. That's probably the only really big issue, because otherwise these clowns are going to act the same. And I don't know that they're going to get it repealed anyway. But if they did, that would probably be worth picking the R over the D just for that, but it really isn't going to make any difference anywhere else. Because no matter what these people say, pretty much the Barack Obama plan globally, uh, with, with some dumb things out of his mouth, not that the other guy didn't say dumb things too when I say who he is in a minute, but he says things one way and says some dumb stuff and apologizes for the country, but basically he acts the same way Bush did. And Bush, you know, come on. 
He really didn't act that much differently than Clinton did on a global basis, and that's the problem. Now, where's the one where I could be wrong? Um, the country wakes up and finds its collective minds and puts Ron Paul up as the nominee. If Ron Paul becomes the nominee, it will be the most important election in modern history in our nation. I don't know that it'll be as important as some of the early elections that established the founders of our country, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, uh, and, and the course they laid in for the entire nation in those first three presidencies. But it's certainly in the time of anybody living, if Ron Paul is the nominee, it will become the most important election in the history of the United States. Unfortunately, one of my predictions for 2012 is not Ron Paul wins the nomination. Uh, whenever I say that, people get mad at me. I want to tell you, I support the man fully. Uh, I get emails all the time saying, hey, can you throw 50 bucks in or 25 bucks in for this campaign? Generally speaking, I do. Uh, he's the only candidate I've ever actually given money to. And he's probably the only candidate, unless somebody else comes along, that I ever will give money to. And, you know, I would not give money to anybody else running for president right now. Um, even some of the other long shots that we don't really hear about or not in the debates and what have you. No. So I, I would love it to happen. I just think this country is still too much in the what can I get mode for that shift to occur because Ron Paul is not what you can get. Ron Paul is fixing the country. And understanding that that's going to require genuine sacrifice initially to fix the country. That's going to, that's going to require probably a slightly deeper recession for a time to prevent a complete and total toilet flushing of the entire U.S. economy. And I don't know for a fact that even if Ron gets in now, and even if he got everything he wanted, that it can be fixed without completely going into a depression. I don't know that it's possible, and in some ways it might be a bad thing, I hate to say this, but it could be a bad thing if that guy takes over and he gets the blame for what was already done. It's not like it's never happened to a president before. <clears throat> Herbert Hoover. Uh, anyway, so that's the first one. So most important election in history will be said over and over and over again by everybody, and it really won't be, and I'm not going to focus on it a lot. I'm really not. No, I'm going to focus on homesteading and gardening and hunting and fishing and food storage and preparations and tactical preps because that's what's going to matter in 2012 more than who gets elected. I'm sorry that's the case, but it is. It's a sad statement of our country, really. Um, and I'll also tell you what's going to happen. About September uh, of 2012, just before the election, we're going to have another threatened government shutdown. And bells and whistles and alarms going off, and it's almost set up perfectly for that to happen. It almost seems like both sides want it, and both sides are betting that they can game it better. Because this new trillion-dollar budget that was, that was allowed through takes us through to September of 2012. Uh, so we're sitting in September with the budget running out, and new one needed to be agreed on right in the middle of the election cycle. Um, if they had brains... Uh, neither party would have wanted that variable in there, and they would have at least ran it out, and they would have put extra money in, and they would have ran it out past the election. But instead, nope, they didn't do that. They set it up right before, and I think both parties want that as a gamesmanship play, and I think it's a sad comment that that's what politics is today. Who can game the thing better? Not who has better ideas, not who has a better plan, not what's best for America, Who can game the situation better? I think that's always been true. I think it is more true in in this current time than it was even 20 years ago. Far more true. 
Um, I remember the whole tit-for-tat thing going on with Tip O'Neill and Ronnie Reagan and all that, and I've studied that period of time in depth, and I, I know there's some things that went on before that, and, and even, even the, you know, the, 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 the first George and, and Bill Clinton to a degree, there was some stuff going on, but it was less gamesmanship and more how do we both get what we want and do it in a way that works for both sides. There was more cooperativeness. Now, there's a lot of things that, that, Both sides want cooperation on right now that I don't want any cooperation on, right? If you if you want cooperation on a national health care system, I don't want it. So take a cooperation, shove it. But running the country, that you know, just basically the funding to run the country, there has to be some compromise there. All right, um, I'm going to go on to the next one. Uh, next one, and I'm going to do the politics up front so I get away from them because I don't like the politics anymore. I really don't, uh, if, you, if you haven't been able to tell. Uh, but the next one is Gingrich, Gingrich will lose in Iowa. And he will begin a terminal spiral after that. Um, once he loses Iowa, all the magic dust that's been sprinkled on the guy will be gone. His own words are his own worst enemy. And there's no way the people uh, that are of the conservative right that generally elect the nominee, the people that get off their butts and go vote in the primaries and the GOP primaries, are going to pull the lever for Gingrich as a majority Um this time around. They're not going to do it because their concern is going to be beating Obama and they do not want that guy standing in debate against Obama. Gingrich thinks he wants to be there. It's nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense because in every place that he's challenged, he can be shown to have broken his own uh, his own commitment, his own word. And I'm sorry it's the case, but it is. He's an establishment politician. What else would you expect? I'm not saying it's not true of Romney or Perry. It certainly is. But they present better I don't mean as debaters. I don't mean uh, in a you know in a one-on-one -on -one debate. I think Gingrich is actually pretty good, but it's a it's a packaged marketing thing. The look, the feel, uh, the recent history. Uh, Perry can wave his flag about state rights all he wants. Romney, if you've noticed in the debates, has been doing that. So I think one of those two guys is your nominee. Of course, the uh, wild card in the whole thing's Paul, and we'll see. But I think Gingrich does lose Iowa, and once he loses Iowa, he's done, and he'll become uh, a footnote. Um, Iran will become the most dangerous threat, in quotes, on the news and in the debates. All of a sudden, everything's going to hinge on Iran. It's already done that for a while, but not like you're going to see it now. Um, the I, I want to be clear on this. I don't think that the Iranian government is uh, looking to snuggle up with us and send us puppies and kittens for Christmas and uh, are a bunch of great guys. I do think they are a legitimate threat in the world, but they will lather that threat and they'll almost ensure an eventual war with Iran if they go far enough with it. And it's a very bad thing. And I think people have a tendency to look at Iraq and say, well, we can pull that off. Well, look at the cost. And there are a lot more people that are opposed to us doing anything with Iran than there were to Iraq. Iraq had a track record of history. Uh, there were UN resolutions that were violated. I certainly feel we were misled into that war, but there was a causal uh, relationship that, that even when people, nations that opposed it said, that's kind of the kind of have to let this go, even though we don't want it to. Even We'll save a rattle, but we won't really do anything. Iran is a different horse. Uh, its proximity to Russia, its friendly relationships with Venezuela, its backing by the Chinese, it's, it, it's not something we want, and I hope these clowns don't push us into it. It could be a completely disastrous situation if they do. My hope is they won't. Cooler heads will prevail. And once that happens, then something else becomes the biggest threat. But until this election's over, 
all eyes on Iran, and they will lather it as much as they can. Let me also say something about this whole thing. If, if, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, if they really want one that bad, they just go buy one. You know, they just go to the former Soviets and they just buy one. Uh, they do want one, though. And I'll tell you what, uh, this whole thing that if Iran gets one nuclear weapon, they will nuke the Middle East and they'll just get rid of Israel overnight. Um, it, it's not going to happen. Because it opens them up. First of all, it takes all their protectors go, oh, dude, dude, no, 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 no. You can't do, you can't be popping nukes. We don't pop nukes. So, so that's not going to happen. Um, th there's no way they could stand up to an, an assault. Uh, by a military such as ours. They just couldn't. Uh, in fact, they'd be far more easy to crumble uh, than the Iraqis really were. I mean, remember, Iran and Iraq fought an eight-year war that was a stalemate. And you saw how well they stood up. So um, the reason Iran wants a nuclear weapon is countries that have nuclear weapons don't get invaded. And they are in fear that eventually the imperialistic Americans, their word not mine, will invade their country and take it over. And they will do to them what they did to Iraq and what they're trying to do in Afghanistan. And they know that if they're sitting on nukes, they can just sit there and no one will invade their country. That's the primary motivation. Doesn't mean they wouldn't use them. Doesn't mean I think it's a good idea. I just think, much as Ron Paul would tell you, that the threat is over, overblown for political purpose. Um, so let's go into some things that are less political. Uh, the only reason I had to put those in there is because it's a, it's a general election and it's going to be one of the biggest things in the year. So I had to put those up front. Um, but going into the economy, more U.S. cities and municipalities will go into receivership. That's a fancy way of saying bankruptcy uh, when you get to the city level. And uh, sometimes at higher levels, they actually go ahead and they call it a bankruptcy. But it's going to happen. And it's probably in the neighborhood of half a dozen to a dozen. And it's probably not going to be... Yet, you know, L.A., New York, uh, what have you. Detroit, they're there. They're right there. And it's only, it, 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 you could almost say it's already happened, but the full revelation of Detroit will be in 2012. No one will care about Detroit. They'll say it's Detroit, of course. I mean, come on, we, we know. They're bulldozing, they're bulldozing houses in Detroit just to get them out of the way. They're doing it in Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio as well, by the way. And Cleveland is probably really, really close on this as well. So, um, but I don't think it's this, this thing I've been calling that eventually like they cascade into cascade failure, kind of like the, the mortgage meltdown was, but it's like a global, it's like a national meltdown of the city governments. Um, not, not 2012. I think they can hold it through there. And our bigger cities going into this, uh, style of decay is going to be, in 2013, 2014-ish, maybe even 2015. I don't know how long they can hold it together. What I do see, and this is very, very concerning, is the cities that only have a minor problem right now that could be rectified uh, by doing things like saying, you know what, we're not going to do raises this year. Um, we're not going to give you another Cadillac plan. We're going to start cutting back. Um, the, 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 the cities, the counties that I see around here, uh, even just here in rural Arkansas, If they're not teetering on the brink, they are full steam ahead business as usual. They're not looking for where they can. They're, they're, they're just operating at the edge of their budget, and whenever they can't pay for something, bond amendment. Well, just put a bond amendment on there, and we'll get the money for free. It won't even cost us any taxes. Uh, and then cases being made to people. You should have one cent higher sales tax. Really? In a city where I already pay 8% sales tax, I should have one cent higher. Why? So we can pay for a jail? That's, that's what just went on here. And it passed. 
People paid an extra penny sales tax. Oh, it's just a penny. <laughs> okay, but now you've gone to a 9% uh, local sales tax? Great! That's, that's, that's good for a town like Hot Springs that makes its money from tourism. That encourages additional spending. It's not like you don't already have a, an additional tax on, 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 on restaurants. Come on. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's not what people spend money on when they're tourists. See, and that's, that's worrisome. They, they think they can just keep mining for more gold and spending it even though they don't have it yet. And that's going to set us up for a really bad problem eventually when this thing all cascades together. I just don't think that the cascade occurs in 2012. I do think this, though. By the end of 2012, there will be more people telling you what I'm telling you about this danger than there have ever been before. More light bulbs will go off over more heads. More people will look at the numbers and realize they don't add up. More people will, will accept that this is a reality. And that could be good, because maybe, maybe we could head this off in some areas. I, I just don't think it's possible, though. There are these huge cities that, that are basically the size of countries from a population standpoint. They, they have a population in, in people and in, in, in economic output that exceeds quite a few small nations. When you look at Los Angeles and Los Angeles County as a whole, when you look at New York City and the five boroughs, When you look at Jacksonville, Florida, is actually, I don't know if you guys even really care to know this, one of these useless trivia facts I know because I went to school in Jacksonville, a grade school. Jacksonville, Florida is the largest city by land area in the world because Jacksonville technically is all of Duval County, Florida. Uh, it's a massive, massive economy. It's a massive number of people. And the belief by the people that work for these institutions that they are entitled to a raise every year, that they are entitled to every dime that they were promised with the pension, that they're entitled. And, and it's, it's not that they're bad people. But, but I've said this before this year, and I need to say it again one more time. It doesn't matter if you're right if there is no more money. right? They grew, outgrew their capacity to support themselves. They started living on the credit card. And eventually all these people that think they're entitled... They're either going to cause a riot in the street and make things worse, or they're going to have to wake up to reality and go, we'll take 10% less. And if everybody wakes up to that and says, sucks, but it's better to get 90% than zero, most of these places can still be fixed. I just don't see it happening. So hopefully I'm right and more people are talking about this by the end of 2012. Hopefully more people are pointing out to, that we are more of a danger to ourselves with multiple bankruptcies from coast to coast of our cities and our counties and our states, not to mention our entire nation, than Iran getting a nuclear bomb. Not saying nuclear bomb Iran, good. I'm saying entire country bankrupt, worse. And I think you will hear some more of that, but it'll still be the outskirts telling you that. It'll be people like, you know, people that are already kind of sort of sounding along like Peter Schiff. Uh, Jim Rogers has already come out and said that he is not shorting bonds yet, but he will be soon. I don't know exactly what that means. He he kind of speaks in like cryptic stuff once in a while. But J Jim Rogers just called the bond market the final bubble. This is the last one. There's no more bubbles to pop, so this one has to pop. And it's a matter of when exactly it's going to pop. And uh, you know we still have the whole eurozone issue. That did, just because they stopped talking about it doesn't mean it went away. Um, I think that Europe will go through something this coming year, very much like what we went through in 2008. 
I don't think it will be good for the economy. I think it will have downward pressure on the market. And then I think cooler heads will prevail, much as they did here. And they'll realize that's not the end of the world. And they'll go on about their stupidity. And they'll keep making the problem worse because they'll get new confidence that it can be fixed. I know that totally uh, disagrees with Carl Denninger, who says it's over like three times this year over things. That go, oh, it's over. And it wasn't over. And it's over again. And it's over. God, I don't want to be wrong about this one. I want it held together for as long as possible. And the reason I want it held together for as long as possible is two reasons. One, it gives everybody out there listening, not just to me, but anybody saying what I'm saying, more time to prepare themselves for it. And it gives us more time for maybe some people to wake up and fix parts of it. Because this is a case where when we go off this thing, With the, you know, when you start having stuff to happen like the mayor of Los Angeles County coming out and going, or Los Angeles City come out and go, uh, yeah, we're bankrupt. San Francisco comes next. And New York, uh, Jacksonville, and Atlanta, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, Houston, Texas. I mean, I'm telling you, uh, and even, see, it's the thing, is even cities like Houston that seem to be doing fairly well right now. Uh, Dallas, uh, Texas has done better than the rest of the nation. The problem is they're, They're just charting the same course a little bit behind the L.A.'s and the San Fran's and the Honolulu's and the Akron's and the Dayton's and the Cleveland's and the, and the Harrisburg's and the Philadelphia's, right? And the Sterling, New Jersey's and the Hoboken, New Jersey's and, and all of these places, Boston and, you know, Providence, Rhode Island. This is exact. They're all doing the same thing. They're just at different stages of that development. And... The hope is that if some of these ships start to sink, some of the other captains look around and go, we can't do this. But it doesn't seem like that's the goal. It seems like the goal, honestly, is to sink the ships. And this will line perfectly up with my next prediction. Downward class migration will continue, but the message is going to be the economy is getting better. Um, I'll go right into like these two kind of go together. Unemployment is going to drop, and people will still have less money. The unemployment rate will decline in 2012. Will it be enough to get the ass clown reelected? I don't know yet. I'm not predicting the 2012 election right now. It's, there's too many variables. Um, but I'll tell you this. I'm not saying that whoever wins the GOP nomination will defeat Obama. I don't, I don't believe that at all. There, uh, the guy's an idiot, but he's good at political gamesmanship. Really, really good. Uh, better than I think his opponents give him credit for. Uh, really good at spin. Uh, really good, good at giving speeches as long as he's told what to say. And uh, I don't think that's definitely, you know, in the cards right now. But downward class migration will continue. The message is going to be the economy is improving. They'll say, look, there's a little bit of improvement in unemployment. One of the numbers and metrics you're going to hear bannered around a lot is how many job seekers to the available job. And that number is in decline, which is a good thing. So if you had 50 people per available job looking for jobs, that's bad. 20 per available job looking for jobs, that's still bad, but it's a lot better. And that's a metric specifically from the, the, the incumbent presidency that you're going to hear that that number's going down. So that that's an indicator that, you know, the unemployment figure is a lagging figure. We can see people being employed. We can, what's really happening? Uh, people are, Finally running out of like 99 weeks or more of unemployment and having to take any damn job they can find. Uh, and yes, if you want a job, you can get a job probably in the next 14 days somewhere, uh, just about anywhere in the country. Uh, it'll probably suck. It's probably going to be a menial job paying minimum wage or just slightly higher. But when you go from getting your unemployment to getting zero, you go out and get that job. So that's one thing that, that, that starts to happen. Um, 
The other thing is some people quit looking, you know. Um, every, every person that figures out how to get on disability for the rest of their life stops looking for a job. And, boy, that's become a profession in the last couple of years. How can I finagle this, you know, I'm fat. I'm fat enough that I need to be disabled. You know, or what they need to be told is, no, you need to get your fat ass up and walk so that you're not disabled. But, but a lot of that has occurred. So there's, and then there's people that just have given up. There are a lot of people who have consolidated their families, doubled up households, so that they can get by on a lot less money now. So some members of that family are just saying, well, I'm not taking a job until I get one like I used to have, making 80 grand. That job's not coming back, so that guy sits around and does nothing. Or he takes up being kind of the neighborhood handyman or something like that. Um, or just realizes, hey, I'm, I'm put out to pasture. I gotta figure out, I don't know, I don't want to be a lazy bum, but I'm 55 years old. And no one wants me now. My company that I dedicated my life to threw me away. And now I just have to go out and do odd jobs or something because no one wants to hire me because they have all these young up-and-comers and the market sucks from the employee standpoint so the employers can pick and choose. So there's no reason for them to hire someone they know they probably are only going to get 10 years or less out of when they're looking for that long-term career position. So all of these things are, are, are lining up to make the situation that's bad look better, but it's not really. And it will continue to erode the lifestyle. And I'm predicting that someone's going to pick up my term and start using it. There's a lot of talk about sliding down in the classes and things like that and falling from the middle class. But I'll actually tell you, I think that mainstream media is going to, somebody is going to steal my term. And when they do, we'll all know I said it first. Downward class migration. Go Google that right now. And you'll find, especially if you put quotes around it, just about everything out there talking about it is us or referencing us here. And I think it will be picked up because I think it's the most accurate description of what's going on. And people would say, well, Jack, that's, there's been people talking about this for a long time. Uh, it was being talked about in the 70s, but it wasn't really. You know, it was, it was that some kids were being born to upper blue-collar families and not having blue-collar work to do, but it was still possible for you to go get that good education and move up. What we're getting into now is a situation where it's not, and, and that's most of the stories that came out this year, where the second, the next generation will not have the prosperity of the, of the, the previous, that your kids won't have as much prosperity as you. Oh, that's one thing. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people literally migrating down in class from where they are right now. So it's not that your kids won't have the prosperity you, you used to. It's you won't. <laughs> it's, it's the average American's quality of life from a financial standpoint, is falling. The government wants more money from you. And even when we get a tax cut, like the payroll tax cut, we've only made the problem worse. How the hell are we going to... Social Security's already in danger of going broke. I got a great idea. Let's cut the Social Security tax. That'll stimulate things. And it puts a bigger hole in the solvency of Social Security. Because <laughs> great idea. You know, and then all that happens is all the municipalities out there start throwing a penny on their sales tax. The money still gets taken by government, just just, just taken by different government. So the money's being taken away at a higher rate than ever. The cost of food, the cost of energy are in a, almost a terminal upward movement at this point. The erosion of the currency's purchasing power is is accelerating. That's we call that inflation. And that's, I mean, one of the biggest things, if you've never heard me say this before, that you need to understand is in general, there are some basic economic rules. Supply and demand does work. If you want an iPhone 6 
5G, you know, whatever the hell they're going to call the next one, or what iPhone 5 for real, instead of iPhone 5 for fake. Um, if you want one of those, and 30,000 other people want to buy one in Dallas, Texas, when they release it, and there's 20,000 phones, the cost of that phone could be almost anything that Apple wants to sell it for. But once everybody gets their phone that's willing to pay the extra money and fight and stand in line or pay somebody to stand in line and do stupid stuff, and a month has gone by and the manufacturing's ramped up and the bugs are worked out and the guinea pigs took care of that for you, you can just walk in and get one anytime you want, and they have to sell for what the market will bear on a normal basis. So there are supply and demand fluctuations in price up and down. But long-term prices do not go up. They don't. I know you think they do. I know that you think, well, I'm paying a hell of a lot more for gas now, Jack, than I was 20 years ago. I'm paying more for bread. I'm paying more for corn. Uh, I'm paying more for meat. I'm paying more for everything. So what do you mean prices don't go up? Well, that's not prices going up. See, if prices go up and people keep spending, then the companies make more money and the, the workers, may, everybody has more. Wait a minute. If everybody has more, where'd the money come from? Everybody has more money in numbers of dollars. Where'd the money come from? We made it. We printed it. And that's called, ding, 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 inflation. So when you see prices perceived as going up, what you're seeing is the value of money actually decrease. And that's where we've, we've come to. And we've come to a point where without getting really, really reckless, they can't even keep that going. We're in kind of a stagflation 70s model right now where the inflation they want won't come. And they have to walk a very careful balance between putting more in and really churning it and going like nuts with it and having like 30% inflation a year and destroying the entire economy. That's the weapon of mass destruction Fed's playing with right now. But that's what's going to happen. More and more Americans are going to have their quality of life decline. And it's going to result in a lot of choices. And some people are going to make stupid choices And they're going to go as far as the debt will carry them. And they're not going to want to accept reality. And they're going to stay in that house they can't afford until uh, we have more foreclosures and all that stuff. And they're going to end up, even the ones that survive and appear to maintain their status. And what, what I've known is, noticed is the higher your status appears to be, the more addicted to it you become. So if you're lower middle class, you don't really care. You know, you're driving a 10-year-old car, you don't care. You know, your yard has a few weeds in it, you don't care. You know, you might take care of everything, keep everything nice, but it's not that big a deal that you maintain your status. When you're upper middle class to affluent and you have a country club membership and you drive the newest Lexus or Acura and you have that and you run in your social circles where everybody worries about what everybody else is doing, when you're in that group, you do some dumb shit, man. Those people do some dumb ass stuff. They will... Do things to keep a kid in a sporting activity the kid's not even good at and doesn't even want to be in. They will do things to drive a new vehicle that well, there's nothing wrong with their old vehicle. Like, oh, I needed brakes and a tune-up, and it wasn't running as good as it used to. All right, so for $1,500, you could have fixed, oh, it needed tires. Okay, for $2,500, you could have fixed everything. And instead, you went out and spent $60,000 on another SUV that you don't need because you cart around kids. You only have two. Those people are really, really foolish with their money right now. They have the greatest opportunity in the world to build up uh, safety nets. They have the greatest opportunity in the world while they're getting still good to downsize their living environment and get into something more affordable and build up an even bigger safety net. And they're the ones that are least likely to do it. And in some ways, it's that upper middle class that's going to get hurt the worst in this. 
Because I see a lot of the middle class, lower middle class, accepting it and saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to downgrade our lives. I've got a lot of emails from you guys doing that lately. We're going to downgrade our lives, but we're going to increase our quality of living. That's going to be our goal. Less money, better quality of life. That way we can not only maintain, but we can actually move up in lifestyle, not income level. And all of these people that are put out to pasture too early, that still want to contribute, all these people that have doubled up, all of these people that are in these situations where they've been kind of forced out and they've been forced down in, 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 in the class structure and what have you, that decide enough is enough. I'm not going to let this really destroy me. I'm going to make the best I can out of the situation. They're going to start running little businesses, and you're going to see a surge in entrepreneurship. And one area you're going to see a lot of growth continue in is urban farming. Urban farming is going to become one of the keystone industries of small business in America because it's a place where the small person, at least for now, if they don't overregulate the shit out of it, can still compete. And as cities need people, To understand, when a city says, like like Cleveland, I saw this on TV last night, okay, they're bulldozing three houses. Why? Because the guy over in that house still lives here. And people are stealing from these houses. People are going in there and, 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 and using crack. We're not getting any tax money in. So they basically seized the property from the bank, right? The bank didn't pay the property taxes. So the, 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 the county or the city comes in and says, guess what, guys? We're taking it. And then they bulldoze it to preserve what's left in the neighborhood. Now, what do you get? You get lots of space. Now, if nobody's ready to build a new house in there anytime soon, what can you do with that space? Well, it's a perfect microclimate for urban farming. And then people bitch and complain. But in reality, eventually, some like some of these cities are idiots. They'll put a woman in jail for a front yard garden. They tried to do it. Uh, America snapped its gasket. You guys did it too, right? We all got together and snapped our gasket on those idiots. And it turned out we wanted to call them. I don't know if you guys remember on this particular instance. And I don't remember the lady's name that stood up against them, but I was going to have everybody call them on a Friday. Uh, it was somewhere, Deer Park, Michigan, maybe? It was somewhere in Michigan. This is a Detroit suburb. And the lady has a beautiful front yard garden. And a couple of neighbors bitched. And those neighbors should be smacked in the face. They really should. So the code enforcement officer came out and said, you have to have grass. You have to have appropriate vegetation. And this is inappropriate. And this was not a slum looking. This was a nice looking garden. And uh, they said, no. You do not have the authority to tell us this. The, 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 what the, the landowner said was, The way the law reads does not make what we're doing wrong. You're interpreting it wrong. They were even told by a court. Eventually, the, the, the city dropped the, the whole thing because like 400 million people got pissed off and called them. That's an exaggeration. We get the point. Well, anyway, I was going to do this big phone blitz and go, you know what? I don't care if we're not from the area. These people need, you know, they need people to move there. They need, uh, a lot of them have bigger aspirations politically long term. We need to call this office and everybody in this office, tell them we're paying attention to what they're doing and what they're doing is wrong. And uh, we we're going to call them on a Friday. And we couldn't call them on a Friday because why? They were closed on Friday because the city was so close to bankruptcy, they could only be afforded, they could only afford to be open four days a week. So these cities doing this dumb stuff around front yard gardens and urban farming and all that, some of them, We'll have to wake up to reality. If we let people do this, it creates a strong local economy. It incentivizes people to move here because I'm going to tell you the truth. There are people all over this country right now that have that little homestead dream. And they also don't have the desire, though, to live out on rural acreage. They want a community, 
right? And not just a, a, a rural community. They want that urban feel. They want to be able to walk out their door and see ten neighbors, not one, right? They want streets for their kids to play in, but they want that that return to agrarian lifestyle. It's a very deep-seated thing in us as humans. When If you take anybody and get them into farming and gardening, you will see joy in their heart. You will see joy in their eyes. We are, we are meant to be connected to the planet. And I don't mean that some weird metaphysical way. I mean physically. We, 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 you know, whether you believe in creation or evolution or a hybrid, it doesn't matter. If we walked on the planet with our feet touching it for thousands of years and we, we lived from it, then that connection was established and we evolved, not necessarily from protoplasm, but we evolved as a, as a community, as a people to be in touch with that. And we become so divorced from it, that's where a lot of misery comes from today. Well, as those opportunities spring up, then those communities that take on this model, we're going to be a leader in urban farming, and we're going to make that part of a real green initiative, not saving polar bears by, by capping carbon emissions. How about saving the planet by feeding our people and developing local economy? They're going to become more attractive. And there is some semblance of the original Federal Republic left. That when stupid states do stupid things, people leave those states and go to states that don't do those stupid things. And then when states do smart things, when people leave the stupid states, they go there. Well, that even happens more within states. More and more city governments are the ones that are the problem. The county governments are the ones that are the problem. Well, it's an easier place to affect change, isn't it? You know the Free State Project? Uh, you know, and, and that's a great thing at all up in New Hampshire. Uh, I'm going to go there and speak at their Liberty Conference in February. Come see me if you're in the area. Um, but they have the Free State Project. What if you just started free city projects, right? Where you pick a city in a state that's already, and you said, you know what, we're going to move as many people in there as possible. And we're going to take over the city government or a county, a free county project. Little things like that. And I think what will happen is they won't have the structure of the free state project, but they'll, they'll kind of happen on their own. As soon as the, the, the city starts to turn just a little bit that way, they'll naturally attract people with a predisposition to that. So I see a huge growth in the urban farming market and a huge growth in uh, restructuring local economies. And entrepreneurship in general. And the thing is, if you put enough urban farms in, you get enough local economy going, support begins to develop off of that. That's how an economy grows. Uh, if it's not false growth, real growth happens when a new sector emerges and begins to become successful. And that generates cash flow. And the people operating in that commerce have money, and they have money to spend now. And then people say, well, look, how can I improve Uh, the business that's going on here for these people, rather than getting my own plot and competing, how can I support them? Can I offer local transport? Uh, can I put together, I mean, think about this. If you got a city with a really strong urban farming initiative, how easy would it be to put together a company that's sort of like Trevor Van Hemer's pedal, pedal to pedal that uses bicycles, but all it actually does is deliver food to local restaurants and delicatessens and things like that. And because there's little sparked, you know, little urban farms all over the place, that if the guy needs one pound of arugula today, that the little bike guy can get on his radio, little handheld radio with a couple mile range, and find out who has it right now fresh. And that order comes from that farm to that. I mean, there's all, and that's just one example. There are millions of little opportunities like that. And Americans without jobs, If they are not constantly propped up with government titty, 
will eventually figure out what to do for themselves and what to do with themselves. And they'll start to realize that making some money is better than making no money. Um, and I'm not going to get into the politics of how a lot of these support programs ruin people's initiative. Well, if I do that, I'll lose my disability. If I, if I, you know, I just had a relative this, this last weekend down in Texas tell me, well, if I do anything, I'll lose my disability. Well, maybe if you could do something, you don't need your disability. The problem is that transitional period. People do enough as an entrepreneur and they only get a, they don't have enough money to survive. You know, starting a business is tough. It takes time. And what I think we need is in a lot of these situations where people basically are on these programs and they become somewhat unemployable. We need a program that says, okay, you know what? You can work for yourself and you can get your money for this long. Maybe it's a year while you work for yourself. If you take a job, you're off. I would actually incentivize entrepreneurship, but I don't want to go too deep there. But that's one of the places I see it really going. And I think food is going to become more and more important, and people are going to become more and more attached to their food and more and more want to know where their food comes from. And I think big money will continue to pour into timberland and agricultural land. I think it's one of the few safe investments. And I'm talking about billionaires here and big-time millionaires, not the guy that's worth two or $3 million, the guy that's worth $300, $400 million. Those people are going to continue to buy agricultural and timberland and kind of tied into that in this whole movement. The big agricultural companies like Monsanto are going to change their marketing. Uh, in 2012, you're going to see a big push by ConAgra, Monsanto. We're green. We're environmentally friendly. They've already said it. But they're going to push it even harder. They're going to talk about changing the way they're doing things. And they're not going to, right? Uh, they're going to talk about coming up with new genetic traits that, that are not for the application of fertilizer or for the application of herbicide. So we're going to genetically modify the food to exist by itself, to be self-sustaining, right? And we're going to be sustainable agriculture. That's, that is going to be a big push from Big Ag. To, to paint themselves as being what the market is asking for, don't fall for it. They're full of shit. They don't have any interest in actually changing. Learn this from me today, if you learn nothing else or anything else I've said. A company can change its marketing and not change a single thing about the way that they do business. Let's extend that. A politician can change his marketing without changing a single thing about what he does. So... When you see these marketing flips, remember to look at the underlying action. And I don't think you're going to see any underlying action shift in Big Ag. They'll do some things, little things, that they'll put out with their marketing as what they do while they continue to do the big things behind, like sue farmers because they've infected their crops with cross-pollination. And it's your fault that my crop infected your crop. Uh, that's what they'll continue to do, but they'll start talking about all these new green initiatives, and they're gonna, they're going to go into biofuels heavier than ever before. They're going to talk about genetically modifying crops that will be able to give greater extractions of biofuel. Uh, not mentioning all the NPK fertilizer that's being dumped on and washed into our oceans. Um, you'll see bigger and bigger pushes for climate change crap in 2012 more than ever before. They know they're losing that war. They absolutely know they're losing the war. They know that people are beginning to wake up to reality that their own science, that they're, you know, they, they set up an experiment that's going to prove they're right. And their own science proves them wrong. Uh, the latest NASA experiment where they measured how much heat comes in and how much heat came out. And they were looking for the trapped heat and the numbers didn't work out. And all the climate models, they understand this. All these climate models that say the oceans are going to rise and everything else. And it's because, there's the big thing. It's because of CO2. They rely on that number. 
That number is in the algorithm. That's how they get it. How much heat will be retained as the concentration of CO2 goes up in the atmosphere? Well, when NASA measured it, the number was lower than the one that they're using. It was lower than anybody expected. Why? Because it turns out that what we've known since the 1800s, the saturation limit of CO2 is in fact scientific fact. And CO2... Uh, actually behaves the exact same way in the troposphere as it does in the lower atmosphere. That was always the out. Oh, yeah, well, there's not really a saturation limit up there in the troposphere. It acts differently up there because it's different temperatures and the space and the densities. And, and, and you know what? Uh, unbelievably, um, CO2 performs the same way. That's what that experiment was. Now, no one explains it to you that way because it's a silver bullet objection. It's something you can't overcome. Uh, if, if you're a global warming uh, CO2 AGW theorist, you can't possibly change that. Nothing you can do. So our economy, our, our, our climate continues to degrade. And I'll tell you that I believe that there has been more damage done to our climate by agriculture than urban automobiles. And everybody's going, oh, can't be. Okay, well, uh, the largest export in tonnage from the United States every year is topsoil. There are huge swaths of our country that used to be nothing but forest and trees. It was said that when the white men first came to America, what is America today? That a squirrel could have gotten in a tree in Georgia and traveled to the Mississippi River without ever touching the ground. And... This is the big thing. That, and I'm just reading this, this uh, Edible Forest Gardening book. It's actually a two-set uh, book, which, God, what a beautiful, beautiful uh, set of books by Dave Jackie, and I can't remember the other author's name. But what, what I read in there that just fascinated me, and this is kind of off the prediction thing, but it tells you why we have problems. Not only did the canopies touch, not only, even though there were big openings, there were like places where the canopy reached around and made big open swaths and, and glades, but then you could still have this canopy all around you. The roots touched. The roots touched from the Atlantic coast to the Mississippi River. The roots grafted into each other. The forest was like a single organism. And there was massive amounts of food being produced in the forest. And what we know now, we could do that better than ever before. But if you want to know what changes climate, cut down trees and create deserts where there used to be forests. That'll change climate. Uh, allow, allow tons and tons and tons, tons of tons of, of, of soil to be blown away, go up into the atmosphere and land in our oceans. That'll change climate. So climate change is real. You just have to ask yourself why. They've chosen the single most divisive and poorly supported theory to put forward on the, on the, on the climate change issue. I'm not, not even environmentalism, climate change. Uh, if you go from having rain to not having rain, I don't care what the temperature is, you've had a massive climate change, haven't you? If you go from having snow to not having snow, even if it's cold enough for snow, but the snow just doesn't come, you've got a massive climate change now, haven't you? So we can show this. We can see this. And no one can, not even me. I can't argue it. But they take the most of, and then we look at environmentalism and pollution. And they put this for, every time you hear anything about environment, oh, climate change, and it's, it's global weirding now. It can't be global warming anymore. And then it's climate change. And now it's just, oh, it's weird weather. Like, I got a word for you about weird weather. That's normal weather. But we have done all these things to damage the planet, and they keep shoving this one thing that divides us in front of us. Why? Because they want you divided. And it, it's amazing to me that you can come out and say, I don't 
believe this. I think this is flawed science. I think it's fictitious. I think after Climate Gate and Climate Gate 2, we even know it's fictitious. We know the books are being cooked. I mean, if the people that are involved in Climate Gate were running a publicly traded company, they would make Bernie Madoff look like an angel. Do you understand how deep below the jail, if they had done the same things with forward-looking financials, as they did with climate science, how much trouble they would be in if they worked for, you know, a, a, a publicly traded company. So people understand this is a lie. And then people are so addicted to it, they can't let go. And this was always my fear. This was always my fear about climate change. That even when the truth came out, the people that have so invested themselves in it, the people who are determined that environmentalism was can be concerned about carbon and global warming. That that was the whole thing would not be able to let go, would not be able to accept the reality, and it would do massive damage to the movement toward environmentalism. I actually think that environmentalism is getting stronger now. I think that more and more people are feeling comfortable coming in and saying, don't believe it. But what amazes me is I can say, this is all the stuff I think we should do. And the true believer in AGW says, this is all the stuff I think we should do. And I go, I don't believe in, in man-made climate change due to CO2. And he goes, everything about you is wrong. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Or as the Brits say, wait a tick. We agree on everything that we're supposed to do action-wise, except I don't want a tax on a global population. Because I don't want a global government, and that's what a global tax is. So I want to do all the things you want to do, and I'm actually doing more in my daily life, but I'm wrong because I don't agree with you. And see, as that starts to come to a head, and these people want this global tax. They want it on the left, and they want it on the right. They'll use different ways to explain why it's necessary, but they want this global tax. They want a consolidation. They want a global government, because then you have more power. And the higher you are up in your hierarchy when you consolidate, the more power you think you have. And that is going to be a big push coming forward. Here's the big one, though. This is the big one I have for you. 2012 is the great year of the end of the earth. Nostradamus predicted it. The Mayans predicted it. The Mayan calendar ends. This is my big prediction for 2012. You ready for it? The world will not end in 2012, and I am putting my right hand up to God and saying, I promise. And if it does, we'll talk to each other on the other side. But the world will not end in 2012. And the reason I think that's actually important is if you buy into any of this bullshit, you'll do stupid stuff. Plan on being here in January 2013, and you'll you'll plan differently than you would if you think, well, it's the last year anyway. And I don't think most people that listen to this show really believe this nonsense, propaganda, bullshit designed to sell books and radio advertising centering around the fact that the Mayans ended their calendar based on a galactic cycle because our calendar ends every single year on December 31st at midnight. It's, it's the end of a calendar. That's all that is. I don't think most of you believe that. But I think that it's really easy for all these people that want to spin stuff to spin it together and say, well, it's not going to end, but it's going to be this incredible transformation and blah. And I want to talk about one clown here at the end. Porter Stansberry. No, End of America. Go to endofamerica3.com to learn about this. Okay, you remember that? Uh, when that thing started coming out, it was very early in the year. It was like January. And it was within, it was, you know, Alex Jones is the narrator. That's another great thing, isn't it? And, uh, within six months, that was the original spot, right? Within six months, well then like six months went. Uh, and then they changed it to sometime in 2011. Here's the crazy thing. In the past, he's often been right. 
go to end of America. Remember that one, right? So last night, I don't know if it was watching the Steelers lose, which broke my heart. I just think, for those of you who are Steelers fans like me, Ben should not have played last night. He was not on his game. He is hurt. Uh, and Charlie Batchelor done a better job. Uh, I've said it. I had to get out of my system. Anyway, I don't know if it was when I was watching um, the game, and it was on ESPN, or when I was, I was flipping over to a thing called American Guns, uh, which is kind of like Sons of Guns in a different flavor, that same kind of reality show, people making custom guns and all. Kind of a cool new show I just found. And one of the stations, they were actually running that Alex Jones spot, just a black screen, white text, and him narrating. And they were saying, he says by the end of 2011, I'm thinking, aren't you guys pushing it a little bit far right now? Aren't you pushing it? So, so I'm wondering when that advertisement, and I want one of you to help me. When you hear it, let me know. When it becomes sometime in 2012, let me know. And the reason I keep pointing this stuff out is because that's what these people that are professional predictors do. Unlike me, uh, who will be wrong and admit it, who won't always know and, and will tell you when he doesn't know, and will often be right and explain why he's right and how to use the information, these people specialize in selling to you based on hard facts and dates that never come, and they just keep kicking them down the road. And, when, and that's going to be bigger in 2012 than any time in the history of our country. And it's not going to all center around 2012. 2012 is going to be talked about. And it's going to create this sense of awareness. And what these people will capitalize won't be 2012 hysteria the way they did Y2K. It's not believable enough. Okay? It's not believe. Y2K had some really believable components to it. Now, it was never going to be what the hypesters said, but there were some things that you could go, that could happen. People might not get their government checks for a month until they fix this. You know? Maybe some of the electrical grid will shut down. I mean, there's, there were some things that made sense, that could happen. Not likely, but definitely could need to be re- So 2012 is not like that. 2012 is complete and utter, total, flipping nonsense. But it's out there enough, and it's been talked about enough for the last couple of years. It's created this heightened awareness of vulnerability. And once that vulnerability is exposed, people want to feel like they can cover it up. They don't like to be exposed. You know, walk naked in a street, and you'll see how un- unfriendly, you've, you know, how uncomfortable it feels. And that's how people feel. They feel like their clothes have been removed when they, when they get the sense of awareness of vulnerability. And they will sell to that. And there will be more and more conventions and shows and stuff. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to be involved with most of them. Uh, I did a couple of them this year. I, I I don't like the the whole vibe. I loved meeting you guys. I love being out there, meeting people that listen to the show, talking to people, helping people. But the fear that I saw in people that weren't familiar with what's going on, it, it, really familiar, was was pathetic. And the the predatory nature of selling to these people, I, I don't like it at all. I don't think it's the right way to go. I think that the right way to go into 2012 and beyond is with the belief the world is not ending. The world continues to shift and change. And people that are unprepared for change always get hurt. And there's some really stupid things that government and the population as a whole have done. And we're going to eventually have to pay the bill. And we need to be ready when the bill comes due. Because we can only pay our portion. And then we need to let everybody else deal with the consequences. And we need to do it in a way where we can be there to help. But we're helping people up, not dragging them. And that's why I'm, I'm going to step back. You know, it's getting very much invited into that world. I'm going to step very far back from that world. I'm going to continue to do what I've always done. I'm not going to be lured by, we're going to have an attendance of 10,000. I don't care. You know what? I'm going to tell you factually. 
Um, going to, and, and there's some I'm going to do. I'm going to do one in March. I'm going to tell you about that uh, when I come back in January. I'm going to announce some more appearances. And I'm going to get out there and I'm going to talk to people. But the reality is I would rather get on this microphone and sit down and talk to the first thousand people that showed up here, let alone the other 26, 27, 28,000 that are showing up now. Then go out and speak to 100,000 people in a stadium that are there for the wrong reasons and aren't going to hear what I really have to say, that aren't, going to, that aren't ready for the message yet. What I love about my show is when you're ready for it, when it's time, you choose to come get it. And all the work I've done for almost four years is available for free. You can go to the site, survivalpodcast.com, and download it. And you can listen to every single show from one. You can hear me get things wrong, and you can hear me get things right. I think it's cool that you can hear me get things wrong. And I think that it's cool that I'm willing to leave all that stuff there. You know, I don't go back and selectively remove things, folks. I don't even know sometimes when I was wrong. Somebody email me and go, two years ago you said this and you were wrong. I go, oh, crap, I did say that. I forgot I said that. Right? I mean, and I think that's where we need to be as a people going forward. We're not going to get everything right. We're not always going to know. We don't get to pick our disasters or our dates of our disasters. We don't get any of that. The biggest thing I tell you about 2012 is things will happen that none of us have even thought of yet. But I do think a lot of the things that I've talked about will happen. I think there's some really bad, and I think there's some really good. I think we have a chance to transform the economy of the nation to more of a local economy with things like urban farming and other things I haven't even thought of yet. That's just one of the ones I like. I think it's cool. But I think that as any type of local economy develops around anything, there's a potential for more and more development. And more and more people who aren't right for the business world to have a chance to go out and work and do things that are meaningful in their community. Because the manufacturing sector is not coming back. There's 1.7 billion Chinamen willing to work for less than your minimum wage cut by three to do it. To do the manufacturing of all the crap. So we're going to have high-end, high-quality manufacturing to a degree. And we're going to have... Custom and specialty manufacturing is, is a base here. And we'll do things like airplanes and cars. But, you know, this, this America that used to be, that was all these little manufacturing facilities all over the place, it, it's been outsourced. It's not coming back. So we have to find something else to do. Feeding ourselves is a good place to start. There's a lot of other things that we could be doing. Teaching each other, providing uh, community and entertainment. There's a ton of stuff to be done. It's an exciting time to be alive. It's going to suck on some levels, but there's some real opportunities there if you're prepared. And I think that all of us can be more prepared if we just continue to look with some level of optimism. If you look with nothing but pe pe pessimism, there's no reason to prepare. There really isn't. People think, well, if everything's going to get really bad, that's when I'm going to get... No, you're not. No, you're really not. You might buy a bunch of crap and stick it away and wait for doomsday, but you're not actually going to start improving your life. You're not going to improve your life unless you believe in tomorrow. I believe in tomorrow. I hope you do too. I hope we have a great week together going out. I hope you have a great Christmas vacation. And when I come back in 2012, I promise you, the world's still going to be here. We're going to still rock on. And here's my commitment to you, because I may not get to say it again, because I have two guest shows on the special. I'm making a commitment to you right now. I'm going to make 2012 the best year that the Survival Podcast has ever had. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Nobody up there cares. They're living for 